stuff that we've gotten on Facebook already this morning. Somebody wrote in and said, my son is on Risperidone. Did I say that correctly? Mm -hmm. uh, my question is, how serious uh, are the claims that this drug is causing breast growth? I have not heard this mm. before. I, I actually have, I don't remember if I've read about this or not, but uh, I don't think Risperdal or Risperidone is having an effect. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is some research, but it's got to be very tiny. Um, Risperdal is an antipsychotic medication, mm -hmm. so I can't imagine how it would be affecting hormones. I don't know. Um, and as a whole, we want to try to stay away from antipsychotic medications because, I mean, antipsychotic medications are not really helping anything. They're just kind of... Um, I guess numbing the symptoms. Okay. It's kind of like taking um, Tylenol, I suppose, or something that will kill the pain for that period of time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really solve why the pain is there or okay. what the issue is to begin with, so it doesn't have any interaction with what's causing it. Okay. Um, same thing with Risperdone. It's just, um, it's basically for things like aggression or pretty severe self-stimulatory behaviors that can't be controlled. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting uh, topic and, uh, you know. Yeah, I'll look into it. I'll, I'll look into okay. whether or not that has anything to do with hormone change. Okay. Another parent who wants to know, how do you get a child with autism to understand when a parent is hurt and needs their help? Oh, yeah. That's a very... You know, that's that again goes back to the whole concept of perspective, perspective taking mm -hmm. or theory of mind. And it is a very, very um, important uh, thing, empathy, uh, not just with parents, but in general. It's, it's a very important, I guess, characteristic for our children to be able to have to, first of all, identify when someone needs help and then be able to give help or wants to yeah. give help. Um, so what the way that we do it, it's one of our lessons in our cognition program or in our curriculum. And what we do is we, um, we act it out a little bit more extremely and we will start with very, let's say, uh, specific scenarios. In fact, we start out with pictures. Mm -hmm. So for instance, there's a picture of a girl who's fallen off of her bike and is hurt and is crying and so we'll set up that scenario like we'll go through the picture and say what does this look like what happened um what do you think she's feeling um and how would you help her and you have to realize that these are many different lessons that get you to the point where you yeah. can actually make sense of this one thing so i wouldn't try this just with any child i mean we try it with our kids once they've already mastered you know, being able to describe a picture or a scenario, mm -hmm. understanding emotions, that's a whole other set of lessons. Mm -hmm. um, and then being able to uh, do inferences. Inferences mm -hmm. mean looking at some sort of visual, whether it's real life or a picture, and being able to infer something just happened and what was that so you know if it's, if there's a child standing next to a bicycle crying and it looks like she has a boo-boo then right. what happened is she fell you know right. and and then uh, basically being able to attach emotions to various scenarios obviously if you're hurt the emotion that goes with it is you're sad 
you know, that's why you're crying. Mm -hmm. So all of those have to be taught first individually through these lessons and then ultimately it gets to kind of the empathy lesson which is, um, so what would you do? How could you help? Yeah. And then we go through, you know, I don't know, Shannon, you probably remember better than I do. Maybe Well, you're, you're reminding me. Yeah. I, I really hadn't realized when Jem was going through this kind of thing what it was leading up to. Right. And you're saying this and I'm right. flashing on all these pictures right, of different right. times that we sure. were in different locations and they were teaching him different elements of this exactly. until exactly. we arrived at the point where people were interacting with him and one of the key things I'm remembering is that uh, something would happen with me but there was always another person whether it was dad or the therapist that would be a voice in Jem's ear saying, saying why is she crying yes. why is she upset what's going on exactly and so you we usually as you know we start everything two-dimensional because mm -hmm. it's easier with pictures yeah. and then once you've done that then the therapist will act out something like yeah. they'll come into the room and uh, pretend to slip and fall or yeah pretend to have a drink fall on them or something yeah. and then have a reaction and then the child is prompted to really pay attention and now it's easier for the child because now they kind of recognize the facial expressions and they recognize yeah. oh you know that's the surprised look or oh that's the yeah. that's the upset look and these are my standard responses to when someone's upset and then as we do that we generalize it more and more and more so that the child now has new responses and can also pick up more and more subtle cues yeah. um, but initially it has to be done in the form of a lesson because our kids when they see something like uh, a parent uh, or, or even a sibling, like crying or something, their it's their first reaction is not uh, empathy or you know, yeah. oh wow, somebody's hurt, I should do something about it. It's more like that noise is really bothering me. Or, right? You know, so How is this affecting very, me? Very different reaction, yeah. right? Right. So interesting. Yeah, I'm remembering all these different times, the different lessons. Yeah. And it's always fascinating to me because when we were living it, when the therapists were coming in and doing these lessons, I didn't always know or ask. If I had it to do over this? again, I would ask, now, how does this fit together with this? Right, right. Because now afterwards, it's like, I get to see how the it. puzzle got put together right. um, and how we arrived at where we arrived at. It's fascinating. Well, so for parents, I think it is confusing. It's kind of difficult because we have, I don't know how many, like really by the time you start teaching the cognition lessons, there's easily a hundred other lessons yeah. that have been taught that yes. have come, to, come together at this point. It is a higher uh, level lesson. So really for this parent, um, I, I would recommend using skills Yeah. because the order of how you bring these things together is really important. If you start teaching a child something like, you know, look at my reaction mm -hmm. and um, this is how you should respond when you see this reaction, mm -hmm. what you'll get from the child is, is possibly appropriate, but it'll be very rote right. and they won't really start to reason it out and figure out oh, so I have to pay attention to when other people get hurt and if it's a child it'll sound like or look like this and if it's a parent it'll be like this and and my reactions are different mm -hmm. if it's a parent or an older person or if it's a younger person and they're also different based on the level of urgency of the thing that just happened. Yeah. 
it's one thing if someone like falls it's another thing if someone's arm is broken you know yeah. so all of that there's a lot in there I always have these light bulb moments when you're talking and I just had the light bulb yeah. moment because a lot of times parents will ask about the difference between DTT and ABA mm -hmm. and what I just realized because and a lot of times there's fear around that if we're just doing DTT that the kids are going to have a robotic uh, it's response yeah. and that that's they're just going to turn into little robots and and I just realized that the difference between DTT and tell me if I'm wrong but in DTT in that little moment they're teaching them how to respond but in ABA across ABA they're really teaching them how to think that's a really great way to put it I hadn't actually thought about it that way because in, in my world it's just DTT is a procedure it's a technical yeah. procedure and um, it's a really good procedure. It's almost like um, anything you want to memorize, right? Like yeah. let's say you want to learn any new skill, let's say playing the guitar, whatever it is. Yeah. You first start out with, um, I guess, memorizing notes, perhaps yeah. memorizing the locations of the keys on the guitar. Yeah. Um, very discrete things yeah. that set the rules right, right? so you, this is you this is how you use your left hand this is how you use your right hand and right. so on very discrete rules um, and then you mix and match the discrete rules that you've learned right. right so you can make different sounds if you hold it this way or this way or and then now you're applying more and more complicated things to it and that's how I see DTT mm -hmm. DTT is the framework like without learning things in discrete sets it's going to be I, I i don't know i see it as extremely difficult and very yeah. very it just makes things a lot longer it's kind of like you're learning things in an unorganized manner yeah discrete trial makes it very organized yeah. and as you said um you don't just stop at doing discrete trials so yeah. you don't leave things rote you what you do is you generalize them to normal life and you apply different scenarios and different sets Sets of rules to what you've learned so then it becomes really normal yeah and then when you add in the fact that the center for autism and related disorders you guys have been at the cutting edge of doing cognition and executive functions yeah. and social skills and really paring it down to those fine little moments to, and teachable moments and then helping to generalize them it it makes it possible right. I watched you guys teach my child how to think through a problem and consider it from many different perspectives so that he now does that freely and doesn't have to be prompted to do it it was fascinating to watch totally. and, and the same kind of thing can be done with any child but Absolutely. as you said you know if you're going to get to the point where they notice that a parent is hurt and can respond appropriately there are so many lessons that come before that that's right and there's you know it just we've I think what we've done which is probably not a it's a disservice I think is because we've been doing this for a really long time I mean I remember when we wrote the first uh, set of sort of um, cognition lessons or theory of mind lessons that would have been I was still in the Encino office and I'm trying to think how long ago that was that was in like mid 90s you know so that's a really long time ago yeah. for this field so you've been doing it a very long time so just the very advanced programming we've been doing also for a very long time and so you don't think about the importance of each one yeah so ideally what we should have done instead of putting everything into our curriculum and everything is in skills and so it's skills is such a massive 
place for information that I think the individual components don't get highlighted enough. Mm. So it's sort of like, you know, the value, I'm sure there are other parents who would love to know how to teach their child this particular skill, yeah. empathy. And yeah. if we were to um, highlight just the steps for that, that in itself might the be recipe. Right. The recipe, I the love recipe it. The recipe for that. And having said that, though, there's like, you know, 50 other things that are just yes. as important in skills already, including all the steps for So this. the cookbook for skills, so that you can look up how to get to an end skill and see that these are the right. 35 things you have to add before you get there. I love that and idea. actually, though, if you do go into skills, and one of the very good features that they put into skills early on was the search feature. Yes. And if you put in there things like um, empathy or teaching mm -hmm. perspective, all of these other lessons will come out. And the prerequisites for the prerequisites them. Prerequisites I love as it. Well, yeah. We should take a break, but when we come back, we're going to have Dr. Doreen answer more of the questions that you guys have been sending in through the night on the live feature. So stick with us. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. Our very special guest in the studio with us is Dr. Doreen Grampache. We, we call her Dr. Doreen. Mm. And <laughs> we enjoy it so much when you're here because we get so much good information. Thank We've you. had a lot of people in the last couple of days writing in about adults on the autism spectrum, and we've the questions have come in from parents. One in particular here right now, can you guide me to resources for an adult child not diagnosed until after the age of 20, please? Oh, gosh, there's very little out there. I wouldn't, if someone really has not been diagnosed until 20, then their issues are so mild that you shouldn't be looking for material in in the autism spectrum world I wouldn't okay I would imagine that you should be looking more for material in let's say the anxiety world um, so you know depending on what your the issues are and perhaps this parent can write in more next time um, I'm just guessing that some of the things you're dealing with are anxiety related and then if you just read any kind of sort of self-help books on anxiety you'll, there's a lot on anxiety that's very very useful and applicable to our field in fact I um, do this really long lecture on anxiety and talk about different things you could do to reduce anxiety because I see that in so many of our kids and adults. So I'd love you know. to do a whole hour with you on mm -hmm. anxiety. Yeah, we uh, should because Definitely. we've had so many people write in with questions about that, and it's and and of course they want questions answered for their young children with anxiety, but a lot of teenagers and adults, yep. and the parents are writing in and saying uh, that they also have anxiety, and we know that yes. that's not uncommon. Well, I mean, how could you not have anxiety as a parent? Well, there is that. As a parent, which, which you're basically worrying all the time. Yeah, so, full-time yes. job. <laughs> and yeah, absolutely. We should do a show on anxiety. I've unfortunately never been able to keep my anxiety lecture to, to one hour, but somehow I'll figure to do that. We can devote two hours to it's it, just, make it a two-parter. It's just that it's, it's fascinating. I, th I think in order to be able to treat it well, mm -hmm. it's really important to identify it in autism as well. I mean, people don't recognize the symptoms of anxiety in autism because it's often it's overshadowed. It's sort of like, oh, that's just part of the autism. 
Right. But it isn't really part of the autism. I mean, even if it is part of the diagnostic criteria, like let's say, um, you know, hoarding. Like a lot of our kids hoard objects, right? They'll carry two things around, or they'll carry one thing around, or you know, they'll put their things in a particular place, or they, or they will really need to carry something all the time, or hide it, or whatever. That's uh, that's anxiety. That's a pure symbol of anxiety, and we see it because if you've been trained to recognize those symptoms, you see it in yeah. the kids. Um, things like, you know, even things like putting things in order or lining mm -hmm. objects up, you know, those types of things do imply anxiety. Checking, like making, going back and forth, those are anxiety type things. Avoiding situations that are difficult, that's anxiety. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that just, first of all, you need to get really good at, like, recognizing mm -hmm. oh the reason he's doing this is because there's anxiety and okay. then treating it okay otherwise we could definitely spend an hour just talking about the treatments mm -hmm. but then I'm not sure that so that's kind of why my lecture keeps going long always is because when I tell people uh, just think of yourself for a day like if you are sick like let's say you've gone somewhere and had something to eat and you don't feel well mm -hmm. your stomach doesn't feel well it's interesting because the number one um, I guess uh, problem or illness ailment that has been contrasted to a feeling of anxiety is gastrointestinal pain mm -hmm. so when you have GI problems mm -hmm. like let's say food poisoning or just uh, you know your discomfort in your stomach and so on um, you feel anxious it's the same feeling it's a very similar feeling to wow. when you feel anxious it's right. interesting that's why people often say oh maybe you have an upset stomach because you're anxious right. no you don't get an upset stomach from just you know mild levels of anxiety right, right? it actually is just that they're similar they're very similar symptoms so that we feel they're the same thing so just think about our kids who have an actual upset stomach I mean yeah. they have like inflammation of the gut and so on think of and and just imagine how much anxiety they're experiencing you right. know that feeling of just kind of like unease right? right same thing as sleep like how many of our kids don't sleep if you and I don't sleep we will definitely start experiencing heightened levels of anxiety yeah so there's a lot of stuff that it makes it a necessary component. Anxiety is, there's no question, it's, it's a big part of autism. I should write something about that because people Absolutely. don't realize it yet. Like it's just something I've been saying for a long time, but it's not recognized, it's not part of the symptoms. People don't talk about it as such. And yet as parents, I feel like it's a question that everybody keeps raising. Uh, as we've, every, each week we get a question that has to, has to do with anxiety. Yeah. So I would love it if you would write something. Yeah, we really should do something It would be a service to all of us. If, um, and, and I would love to and set we, aside we a week. We should do a show for that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely, if not two weeks. Uh, okay, so looking at anxiety, mm -hmm. I, I think that's fascinating instead of looking at uh, the autism material. I, yeah, if the yeah. child is over 20, Well, an adult. If, if, if the child's just been diagnosed just, over yes. 20, that means the individual is very, very high functioning, and otherwise there would have been an earlier diagnosis, or okay. someone would have pointed something out. A really good point. We're actually going to take another break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about some more things having to do with adults on the spectrum, so stick with us. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Doreen Grampichet for our segment called Ask Dr. Doreen. We ask you guys to write in on all the different features that we have and ask your questions, and then we, we give them to Dr. Grampichet. As I said before, she does not give child-specific advice but can help to 
point us in a direction so that we can get more resources, more information, more help. We had somebody who wrote in uh, via email about uh, their child who is in their late 20s. Um, and she specified that the child got a diagnosis very early on of ADHD and OCD. The mom always felt that there was something more. And now there, we don't know how recently, but there is an Asperger diagnosis. Um, she writes, he has not been able to hold a job for two years now. He lives at home. I'm trying to teach independent living skills. It's difficult as he does not retain material. He sees a counselor, but I question if that person understands his disabilities and how they affect him. I'm not getting any younger and have concerns about his future. Any information or sources of information that you could give me would be greatly appreciated. And she goes on to write that it's extremely stressful for her as that she has some health issues, including MS. And I know, you know, parents tend to break down after years and years and years of stress. Oh we know more gosh. and more parents who have autoimmune issues as a result of, you know, things going on with them. And it just heightens. Uh, you want to talk about a downward spiral because then you start to worry about what happens when I'm not here. Absolutely. Uh, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, don't, I just like my hat off to, to mm. those parents and parents who handle it and keep going through so many years. I would like to add too that um, she gave us more information that he is absolutely adamant about refusing to take any medication. Mm -hmm. um, that that is off the table for him. That's fine. So, you know, one of the things I often tell parents when I see them is the uh, labels really don't mean all that much. They help us to kind of classify, but they don't mean much. And this is a really good um, example of that. So this is someone who was labeled with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder at some point earlier, as well as with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And so if you take the symptoms of those two things, so just ADHD and OCD, ADHD would be the main symptoms. And I don't know if it's what type of ADHD, but let's assume it's combined to type so that means that the person has inattention or difficulty paying attention to certain stimuli um, and certain situations and perhaps also some hyperactivity we don't know but um, you know this those symptoms of ADHD the inattentive type of ADHD are so similar to autism that traditionally it was very hard for like new people coming into the field, new diagnosticians to even be able to differentiate and say, is this ADHD or is it more autism type or high functioning autism? And really there are quite a few differences actually. The ADHD type individual is much more connected to society than the autism individual. Um, people with autism really do um, have a very difficult time interacting and understanding other people and that's a big difference from ADHD. ADHD uh, people they interact fine it's just that it's got to be at their speed right so they're like going really fast or they're jumping from one stimulus to another and interacting and so on but it, it, they interact so yeah. they know all the ins and outs of how to interact socially. Um, now 
when you combine it with OCD, when you say there's obsessive compulsive behavior, that's where the element of anxiety comes in, yeah. right? Because OCD is one of the anxiety disorders. So of course, then it becomes a little bit harder because then now you're entering a world that's similar to ASD to autism. Because now you're saying, okay, this person has a really hard time paying attention to stuff. And oh, they also have the symptom that's kind of uh, much more like rigid, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's like you're doing repetitive behaviors that could easily be the same as in autism, what we call the self-stimulatory symptoms or behaviors. So it's very, I can see from, uh, um, you know, if I had met this individual earlier, I would have been able to see how, yes, on the one hand, you could say ADHD and OCD, but really it's more Asperger's perhaps because the combination of OCD and ADHD would resemble right. Asperger's in some ways. But having said that, let's go back and let's not even care about the label. Let's just care about the symptoms for a minute. About, and, and about getting some progress. And, and get, some getting help, some help. Right. So this first, exactly. And so, so just to start, and, and medication is off the table, okay um, you're what you're dealing with primarily is possibly an individual who actually does have difficulty learning and is therefore anxious as a result of that now I'm not saying they're anxious in the same way as you and I would be like so this isn't someone who wakes up early in the morning worried and you know tries to do their best to get to work on time or whatever that's not something what's actually happening in, and it happens in a lot of our patients is that you, you have a certain level of anxiety and, and if your anxiety is high, high enough, you'll procrastinate, you'll avoid, completely avoid. So what it sounds like with this individual is they really are avoidant. Um, and I, so the way I see it is the skill set's not there. So the person's having a hard time learning, let's say, independent work skills. Mm -hmm. um, and they calm themselves through these compulsive behaviors, which are anxiety reducing. And in the meantime, they avoid mm -hmm. uh, actually, you know, getting it together and getting a job and so on and so forth, because the skill set is, is not there and it's hard for them to actually right. independently get a job. Right. So here you are as mom trying very hard to teach them something that's very hard for them to do. And um, yes, it can be extremely frustrating and so on. So um, two places, I guess we do this. Like, first of all, let me just say this is one of the things CART does. Mm -hmm. We do, we train our adults and adolescents on vocational skills. Mm -hmm. And so if you are anywhere close to where we can help you, we would love to do that. We're, we're Okay. You know, we get all kinds of coverage for this. And you can go to centerforautism.com, click on the locations tab and see if you're close to one. Right. And if you're not close, if you're not close to one of our locations, then you can still go on the Center for Autism um, site and request remote services. That'll be a little bit harder for us to get to you. That's sort of giving you your own supervisor who actually comes to you. But depending on where you are, uh, we might already have supervisors in those areas. We have 200 supervisors and they travel and so on. So we might be able to get to you fast, but we can definitely give you guidance. And yeah. if you are close to one of our sites, we'll team, we'll put a team on, on your child and <clears throat> is we're fully covered with insurance wherever there is insurance. Um, and we will try to get you help for that. If we're not, and if we can't help you, 
I always recommend Tony Atwood's material. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Tony Atwood, he's from New Zealand and he has a wonderful books, videos, tapes, um, DVDs, training materials, I mean, you name it, he really, and his expertise is Asperger's and sort of this, this group of kids, um, teenagers, early adult, young adults, and he does a lot of work in this area, so yeah. I really recommend his stuff. I also recommend Peter Gerhardt, G-E-R-H-A-R-D-T, mm -hmm. uh, -E I think, Gerhardt. He um, is also fabulous with um, adults, adolescents and adults, and he specializes in, I think, vocational um, training. Okay, great, great resources. We've had uh, the mom of the 20-year-old the that we were talking about before oh, okay, great. Uh, write in some more information, but let's take a break first, and then we'll come back and go back to that question, so stick with us. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. We're here with Dr. Doreen Grampache, and she's answering your questions live on the show. So we were talking earlier, we had the question, can you guide me to resources for an adult child not diagnosed until after the age of 20, please? And as we were talking, we were talking about if they haven't been diagnosed till later, you were mentioning Right. that chances are that the you know they have a lot of skills right. um, and the mom has written back and said no the issues are huge that the adult child was not diagnosed until then because the professionals professionals we had would not listen and they only treated ADHD which yeah it's very sad to look it is, in those situations and that's usually I don't know one of the I mean, I find that there are more services and we're a little bit more understanding of these things. I think in California and perhaps New York, other states, and sometimes when you're like looking at more Midwest states or where there really are very little services, um, then professionals don't have a very good understanding. What am I talking about? I was in Arizona and I was shocked mm -hmm. at, um, with when I was looking at some physicians or, or teaching some physicians and they really knew nothing about autism, nothing at all. I mean, they were asking asking me what are self-similatory behaviors, you know, shocking stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm just, it, it breaks my heart when I hear things like that. You really, you know, and, and when the issues become that huge, I do really recommend professional help. Yeah. Um, I don't think, it's, it's just so difficult. Even when our kids are little, Shannon, it's hard to take control of all their issues. But once you have someone who's in their 20s, the, the patterns are ingrained, it's so much harder to teach, it's just so much harder to change behavior at that point. I, I really do recommend professional help, and of course, having said that, it is harder. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are many, many, many services for young kids and not so many for older kids. We do provide services for uh, adults, and as I said, some of the um, you know the experts I would say in this field, uh, Tony Atwood's work is fabulous. I don't know where Peter Gerhardt is right now, but if he's anywhere that you can access, he's where I would go. Okay, and and I want to point out too that I I so appreciate you saying how difficult it is because all of the problems that you have with a younger child are so exacerbated when they're older. Oh yeah. But and 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 the importance of getting professional help. But I also want to remind everybody that when they get that professional help, that there. Are are solutions and things and progress still can be made at that point, right. correct? Oh, no question about it. I mean, these techniques, they don't expire at a certain age. Right. Yeah, these are techniques that work on human behavior and there's no question. It's just, um, you know, I'm, I'm shocked personally because sometimes now I get involved with kids who are like in their 20s, yeah. right? I call them kids, but um, my young adults and they are like spectacular. They're just 
amazing. Yeah. Like so much nicer than any other. I mean, you can see that what they have learned from ABA over the years. And these are, these are individuals who've probably had a lot of ABA early on. And I still to this day, I have uh, parents are resistant. Uh, parents of older kids are resistant to us doing any kind of discrete trial because back then when they received discrete trial what they received was not quality discrete trial it was rote and it never really got the individual to a point to that it would be useful it's just that simple so but when I explain to them that this is just the technique allow me to do this because this individual has learned and I have a lot of kids like this now that we have a lot of older individuals or adults they're, they're awesome human beings. They don't have behavior problems. I mean, clearly they're just great. They have behavior problems when they're really frustrated and yeah. no one's listening to them in any way. Otherwise, they're the most polite, gentle human beings you'd ever meet. Yeah. It's just no one listens to what they're asking for. No one pays attention and no one realizes that, you know, from their perspective, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So you kind of have to play fair when it comes to individuals that are like adults because they've already gone through a lot and they've developed patterns in order to survive. Yeah. And, and it's hard. And I appreciate too, you know, not only is it important to get the professionals in because you're going to get it done more effectively, more efficiently, but at that point, Point, the parent yes, has right. been through so much too Absolutely. and you've got so much emotional baggage and you've been let down by the system so many times just so true. that that you need somebody to come in and forge the path so that you can follow it's along. so true and I do have parents who I know that the reason they're hugely involved is because they just don't trust anyone anymore and it's like how could how is, I don't understand how this in this field, you know, this field, there's so much um, just separation in this field. I mean, like if you are a psychologist, I mean, forget about the fact that ABA came into the world many years ago and, and is supposed to be focused on these types of issues. But, you know, if you're a psychologist, how can you not understand what a lot of our adults or kids are going through? And I think part of it is because there's this division between sort of psychology and then behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. And so you're either behavioral or you're cognitive. Mm -hmm. And why you can't see people from both perspectives as well as medical, you right. know, like see all of it together. I don't, I don't get it. Why does it have to be one or the other? But frankly, Dr. Grampuche, that's why we need you. And that's why you are a visionary because I think that not only do you see it from all those perspectives, but you also take the parent's perspective and you oh. take the kid's perspective. I have seen you interact with different individuals at different ages and I, you know, I'm welling up here because that is what you do. I yeah, think that I, that is, you have so many skills, but I think that that is a brilliant skill that I want to learn more about how you take perspective. Well, I mean, thanks, Shannon. I appreciate that, but I don't, I, I know that I've just, that's natural for me. I, I can't understand how my kids see the world unless I try to see it from their perspective. Wow. And it's hard. It, once you do see it from their perspective, it completely makes sense. Yeah. Then you're like, oh my God, now I get it why this didn't make any sense. Right. That's why I love like hearing what my recovered kids have to say yeah. and like reading what Temple has written because yes. it just gives you a whole different 
understanding of yes. what they're going through. You You're know? right. It starts to make sense. It makes perfect sense. It puts sense. it in context that you go, well, I can completely get that. that yeah, it like, doesn't seem odd or weird, the behavior that they were engaging in that seemed odd and weird before. Or And it doesn't seem... Um, like uh what's the word oppositional yeah for instance like you know how andy says uh, andy always tells me like that he used to hear voices in the background sound language mm -hmm. sounds were not as loud as things like doors creaking or whatever right and if you if something something as simple as that just makes you completely understand why the kids are focused on stimuli they shouldn't be you know, yeah. and why they're not focused on language, for instance. Yeah. Something as simple as that. Whereas if you don't really think of it in that way as a behaviorist, you would think they're, you know, their hearing is fine. Why aren't they paying attention to language? Right. It's an oppositional or it's an escape maintained behavior. Like maybe he's just ignoring me. That's not right. the point, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting when you really learn all the ins and outs. And that a big part of being able to understand things from the perspective of our kids is the sensory. If you don't, and I still don't even come close to, I never would claim that I understand um, all the sensory issues our kids go through. There are so many. There are so many, and I can't even begin to understand. But I know that some of my kids can't even, can't focus. I know some of my kids can't see moving objects. I know some of my kids can't hear very various sounds mm -hmm. well. Um, I know that they some of my kids constantly need pressure or something on their skin in order to calm them down. I mean, there are a lot of sensory things going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Great, great information. We're going to take another short break and come back right after these messages. Stick with us. Welcome back to Autism Live and to this particular segment called Ask Dr. Doreen. We have with us Dr. Doreen Grampache, who is an expert in the field of autism, thank but also you. a visionary. Oh, thank you We very much. so appreciate all of your insights uh, that help us to be able to do the things that we want to do with the individuals who are on the spectrum in our lives. And we had a question come in on the live feature. Uh, Dear Shannon and Dr. Doreen, you both look great today. Flattery will get you everywhere. Uh, quick question. For a child age six, what would be the dosage for tranquil sleep when given at nighttime? Like to have an idea. Thank you so much. You are the best. Uh, tranquil sleep comes in three milligram tablets that are chewable and age six, You it depends. You know, three milligrams is... Mm, depends on your child's body weight really okay so if it's a large if it's a typical six-year-old i'd probably start with half of that half, break one and a half okay um and then you can work it up from there but i mean this is it's not you know as an adult i i can take uh six milligrams so i could take okay. two um and uh but then you know some six-year-olds are pretty big and they don't have the, so like when my kids were six i guess one tablet would have been okay for them okay but i mean melatonin is a relatively harmless thing um and i would say you're looking at one to three milligrams for a six-year-old okay great uh we've got a couple of different questions about emotions and teaching emotions to our kids uh one to start about um teaching them how to express how do you get your child to show his emotions whenever he's upset and not express his emotions from a movie mm -hmm. um yeah that's a little that's i have to think about that a little bit because first of all there i don't know enough uh, I, I don't know how much your child has already gotten 
uh, ingrained in the whole movie thing. Um, sometimes our kids get into uh, scripting. Basically, they'll be watching movies and then they'll take language from the movie and use it. Um, and it becomes so, um, I guess, overly, just takes over uh, all, a lot of their language because they pretend to be in the movie and then they use mostly scripting and that becomes a little bit hard to break. Mm -hmm. um, if that has actually happened, you need to cut down on the movies for a little while just to reduce that from happening and then uh, you know there's our emotion lessons are oh my gosh it's one of our largest social lessons and I would say there's maybe 20 different lessons involved in just teaching expression of emotion and so you know it'll start from very basic recognition of emotional features and recognition of emotion based on scenarios or settings um, and then appropriate ways to express which are many uh, you know and different so if it's a uh, let's say a male their expression of emotion will be quite different than a female and so on and so forth so there's too much for me to want to uh, describe here but mm -hmm. it is very doable absolutely you just have to step the uh, teach the child step by step and like anything else in ABA what you're really trying to do is prevent one response and replace it with another mm -hmm. so I guess what I'm saying is in order to prevent the scripting just cut down on the movies for a little while okay. and then teach the appropriate uh, types of expression some of which are scripted you know I mean some mm -hmm. of it is language when you express um, you know when you if you do use skills our online program and if you go in there you'll see there's a, a, a one of the sheets one of the charts which kind of lists all the exemplars and mm -hmm. this is like all the different ways to express mm -hmm. emotion and reaction to different things so all the different ways to express sadness happiness etc etc then you have to find different ones that are appropriate that you feel are appropriate to your child's age and gender and so on um, and then you will teach those and it's not very hard to replace uh, you know one type of response for another okay so slowly systematically and slowly all those lessons are in skills yeah they are all in skills and, and you know it would be very hard for me to try to tell you because I don't know what emotion I don't know your right. the age of your child the gender I don't know how much language they have I don't know but skills would be able to take you through all that okay cool now this other question that we had about emotion is there it's uh, a lengthy one so I'm going to cut some parts of it is there a way to teach embarrassment to a 10 year old on the spectrum uh, she goes on to say I have a 10 year old who seems to understand my emotions but still does not feel embarrassed she gives an example of when he's walking up to school and that he will walk in a way that would attract attention mm -hmm. and that for another child not on the spectrum kids would make fun of and then they would feel embarrassed and she's trying to change the way that he's walking up to the school she um, prompts him and makes him go back and do it over again she's wondering if that's the right way uh, she goes on to say I'm wondering if the consequence I'm providing is the right direction should I always be priming him about his behavior and again is it really possible to teach embarrassment and she goes on to thank you very much. She's watching sure. and using skills. Oh, wonderful. Good. That's great. So, yes, it is very possible to teach embarrassment, um, but I don't think your child is making the connection just from hearing what you wrote here. Because embarrassment has to do with, if you think about what embarrassment is, embarrassment has to do with uh, 
you know, not liking how other people think about you. That's, that's what causes embarrassment. Okay. So embarrassment naturally involves perspective taking. It has to. If you don't have the ability to take other people's perspectives, you will never be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. Because you could go out uh, without any clothes on and you wouldn't care. Because from your perspective, everything's fine. Right. Okay. So embarrassment ha comes with theory of mind. You have to have perspective taking. And this scenario, I think the, you know, the way walking to school and making certain uh, noises or sounds or whatever to behaviors that attract attention, um, I don't think the child is understanding that this is embarrassing. Okay. Now, he could possibly, and I don't know the child well enough, he or she could potentially, and what you would do is videotape the behavior to going to school and um, maybe even videotape other children reacting to it and then show the video at home and talk to your child and say, uh, look, did you see what you did? And look at what they're doing. Why do you think they're doing? Why do you think they're laughing? They're laughing because it sounds funny. It isn't normal. It isn't good. You shouldn't make mm -hmm. these sounds. I don't think they want to be friends, that kind of thing. But, but that would only apply if your child was already at a stage of development where they cared about having friends and looking good. If your child isn't there, then that's not the right way to go. Okay. It's just not going to make any sense because then to your child, it just won't make any sense. Like, who cares how they're reacting and so on. So then I would back off. And for this particular scenario, I would just say no noises or no whatever. I would just make it very basic and say, I don't want you doing any of this. So the connection that you make, you know, like, let's say, you know, sometimes we tell our kids, you have to... I don't know, um, go to sleep at a certain time, mm -hmm. okay? And that is very personal, and that's there's no real rule about whether you have to sleep at 8 or 10. Right. There isn't, right? I mean, but we make these rules. We yes. say 8, 8.30, 7.30, you have to be in bed, whatever. They're rules. Yeah. And so just make a rule in terms of when we walk to school, it has to be quiet. Okay. Uh, you could do a lot of things to make that happen. Obviously, you could play music and headphones. Um, you could help teach the child to count in his head. You could teach the child to make noises in his head, like making noises inside versus outside is something we do as well. Yeah. So there's all that sort of stuff which could control the behavior for that period of time. And you're not really approaching the whole area of embarrassment unless your child really is, you know, coming home sad and saying, I don't know why nobody, anybody wants to be friends with me. I don't have friends and all this. Then you really do want to approach that. And then you do want to say it has to do with how you behave yeah. and look at how you behave. And and it sounds like she really would like for him, I, I don't think it's just about the behavior, that she would like for him to understand embarrassment and be able to apply this to other circumstances. Right. And so to answer her question about can you he teach might, it? He might, absolutely you can, but then you have to go back and make sure he understands perspective taking. So, so start all of, there. All of cognition, like the theory of mind, uh -huh. perspectives, sensory perspectives, remember those lessons? Oh, yes. All have to precede this. Some of those lessons were really fun. We had a good they're time fun. with them. They're fun, but they're long and they're difficult. So yeah. you do have to teach the child, uh, you know, all the different perspective lessons. 
I'm trying to go through my head right now. So senses, sensory perspectives, thinking, knowing, beliefs, desires, intentions, all that yeah. sort of stuff. And she's using skills, so she's got access to all of those. Now, I would say as a parent, because I remember the day that my child, for the first time, felt embarrassment. And I, I was there, and he was in kindergarten, and a moment happened, something happened, he said something. Mm -hmm. uh, the teacher had said, you know, we're going to have a holiday party at kindergarten, and everybody can wear, uh, put on your holiday uh, dress, was what she said. And she was meaning, you know, dress like what everybody is dressing in. And my son, who was trying to acquire language, said, oh, I have some I have a holiday dress that I want to wear, misunderstanding the word dress in that context. Mm -hmm. And all of the little boys started laughing and pointing at him. Mm -hmm. And he turned red, and he turned to the teacher, and he said, they're not laughing with me, they're laughing at me. Oh. And it was this moment, right? And right after, and the teacher dealt with it, best teacher in the world, dealt with it, and then sent them out to the playground. And I was crying. And she mm. came up to me and she said, I'm so sorry, you know, and you know he's okay. And I said, no, I'm crying because he felt embarrassment. Yeah. It was and he, there was a huge, huge leap for him. But, I'm, you know, but there was also a part of me that I said, now we have to double down on how he deals with embarrassment. That's so, it's, and you know, you being, you were always and still are very, just like you understand him so well and you're so aware of his issues. Well, I don't know and about that. that. You are, and that's, <laughs> that is what makes our kids successful because <clears throat> as a mom, you know, and that's how I do it too with my kids, I'm constantly trying to figure out like, okay, and that what you said is so true. The minute our kids become aware mm -hmm. of certain things around them, then you really have to work on their self-esteem issues, yeah. being able to handle losing, being able to yeah. handle all of that sort of stuff, you know? So it comes, it does come naturally. And it, uh, you know, giving them some stuff to fall back on and some support is also very important. So I, just going back to this mom, I would say, you know, don't go to embarrassment yet. Trust me, it will come. When your child has adequate perspective taking and mm -hmm. theory of mind ability, mm -hmm. they will feel embarrassed when the time comes.